This is Sam Ramsey, and you're listening to Open Source Data. Tony Goda is a serial entrepreneur and inventor with a deep history in fraud, security, storage, and SaaS businesses. Tony's companies have raised over $40 million in venture funding, and millions of people have used his products globally. He holds several issued patents and previously architected two of the fraud prediction systems at MasterCard. He founded and built the convergent encryption and core technology for BitCasa, which scaled to millions of users worldwide. He subsequently founded ThinAir, a Y Combinator-backed SaaS service that tackled the insider threat problem for enterprises and government agencies. Tony's latest adventure is as head of customer engineering at Fleet Device Management. It's an open core company powered by OS Query. Fleet gives enterprises real-time visibility and answers questions about their servers and workstations in a single pane of glass. Welcome, Tony. What are you super curious about these days? You've built a ton of stuff. You could choose to build a lot of stuff. Right? <laughs> the, the stuff that you built in security and fraud, like the problems for people like us are just freaking abundant. Yeah. How do you go through the process of choosing what you're going to do and how do you stay excited? So actually, I use the excitement itself as an indicator of what I would continue to work on. Right. So I start out thinking about ridiculous ideas. One idea that I was thinking about was AI is making a lot of changes in the world. I'd really love to know if there was some AI application for physics, for it to better understand the world itself and how the rules are so that we can infer things and maybe do things that we don't quite understand why they work, but we know that they do work. Those are the types of things that I think about. But then is there a practical application for that? Is there a path from where I am today to actually build something in that area. If I could do a lot of research and figure it out, then I would. But in some cases, it takes way more than just research and knowledge. It takes a team. It takes funding. It takes all these other things. So for me, it's really about, one, is there something that can keep me excited enough for me to persevere through all of the different hurdles that I have to overcome to actually achieve the goal? And if it is, then I'll continue to work on it and possibly build a new product. That's typically how it works. I'll try a bunch of things, and sometimes they're just projects that die off. But the ones that persevere are the ones that usually end up being real companies. That's super cool. It's like real world as your research lab. It's so much the the research process. My son is a PhD student at San Diego studying nanoengineering. Oh my god! Nanoengineering PhDs can do if they're not doing random developed materials because it's a little bit randomized. We don't quite understand why nanomaterials work. Right. We have some theories, right? But to actually figure out the quantum mechanical interactions in Something as simple as a 100,000 element system. Wow. We'll take the San Diego supercomputer like 20 hours to compute. So it's a very slow process. Right. So they're starting to figure out, could we use AI to create some inferences around known experimental data and then create effectively statistical shortcuts to say, we don't have to have the precise theory of the exact quantum mechanical interactions, but we can fuzz it out and get it mostly right so that we can predict, hey, if you want a material with these quantum mechanical nano level properties, you might try this. So it's interesting to see how we're all dealing with these same points of curiosity, right? How can we use this amazing capability to do more in the real world? And if you think about it, it's really about letting the computers figure out the things that we as humans can't quite comprehend at the moment. But we know there's probably a pattern there that can be recognized. So we let the pattern recognition machine go figure it out. And that in itself can lead to tremendous discoveries. But I am extremely excited about AI, the future applications of it, and just all different areas of science and business. There's an amazing amount of math involved in it. I've often found that trying to keep up with AI means facing my own limitations in math. So I'm often using mathematical reasoning 
right. rather than actually understanding the math of how it works. <laughs> I'm curious, you must have applied a tremendous amount of math in the scale of problems like security and fraud detection, work at MasterCard. Those are mathematical problems. I recently came across something called the zero knowledge proof requirement, yeah. which is super gnarly mathematically to figure out how you solve it. I'm not a person who can figure that out. I can kind of reason if somebody says you kind of do it like this, but how far have you gone down the math rabbit hole and what have you picked up along the way that you absolutely needed to solve these problems in front of you? I am a very practical inventor. I guess that's the best way to put it. So if I am approaching a new problem, what I try to do is to learn as I go. And as more questions pop up, that's when I start to dive in a little bit deeper for me to understand different areas. One of the things that I've learned to do is to understand things at a deep enough level to solve the problem that I'm applying it for. I spend a lot of time just trying to make sure I, that I do understand the question that's being asked so that I can then find the information that I need to solve it, but in a very tactical way. So that then I can move on to the next problem. If you're building a startup or inventing a product, I don't have time to go to four-year college and get a degree in whatever area that I'm attempting to do a level of innovation in. But what I do have is the ability to kind of synthesize different things that I've noticed in other areas and apply them in new ways. That's awesome. It takes a ton of confidence to be that kind of learner. And as an inventor, I think you're also like at least a second-generation inventor, right? Because your dad's an inventor. <laughs> And you have an awesome story, I think, of how you came into tech. I would love for you to share that with our audience. So how I got into computers, actually, was at a very young age. My father had a computer consulting firm. And he actually brought me in and he, he gave me a computer and he said, you know what? You can do anything you want, except you can't play games on this thing. Right? So if that's the case, then what is a kid to do? So I decided to start building things. I would build different tools that would solve problems for me. I remember there was one year I was in algebra or whatever it was. And there was these worksheets that they made us do. And it was so tedious. It killed me. I remember writing a software program to solve the equations, and then I would turn them in that way. So the practical application of computing was what I've always been excited about. Watching him build his companies, I then started to become enamored with business. Building a product and then taking it to market, that's a really hard thing to do. It's two parts of your mind that you kind of have to put together, you know, the technical aspect, but also the ability to work very well with people to build an organization. Those are things that I also watched and learned from my dad. One of the products that I actually built was a fraud detection system for the sailor industry. So cell phones were analog. There was no encryption. And as you drove under a bridge... And super expensive, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, my God. He had these huge antennas on cars. The devices were expensive. They were very limited. They were going to be in a Porsche or a Lamborghini, <laughs> right? I think about Miami Vice, right. right? Sort of, you know, bringing around the briefcase with the cell phone in, and it's kind of amazing throwback. But yeah, everything was super expensive. So if there's any fraud in that, that's going to be ruinous for the company that's providing the backhaul and all that infrastructure. It was. So what they would do is they copy those cell phones, and they would literally clone them and then in another part of the city or another part of the country, they'd call down to places and they'd order like drugs. And then you as a consumer would get a $10,000 cell phone bill that you had no idea of where it came from. So the cellular company was actually, they were losing millions of dollars from fraud. And basically we came up with a solution. Well, actually it was his invention. So there's a cell tower in point A, cell tower in point B. There's a clone phone connected to A and then the original is connected to B. So we'd actually calculate the distance between the two and determine if it is physically possible for a person to travel from point A to point B that fast. And if it wasn't, then you know it's likely that one of them was a fraudulent. And then they would create a report and they go start investigations. So it actually ended up working out pretty well. 
It's a simple idea, but brilliant, because now we call that temporospatial yeah. analysis, and we build vector databases that make sure that you know the time dimension is encoded with the three spatial dimensions along with any other piece of data coming through. So yeah. you can do all that. But you were doing that with your dad back in the 80s? Yeah. <laughs> Early 90s? Yeah. I mean, this, 80s, is, this is super intense. Yeah. I had a kid. I didn't understand like what he was doing. Like, I, I mean, I understood. And I could program a bit. But watching him achieve these things, it was fantastic to me. He was like a superhero. That was very inspiring. It allowed me to kind of do other things, which led me to MasterCard. We're actually built. So That's awesome. Yeah, where I was part of that team that built the fraud prediction system that actually determined in real time if credit or debit transactions were fraudulent or not based on historical patterns and other indicators of compromise. But that was a very fun job as well. Did that for about five years. That is so interesting. We had Sophie Watson talk with us last season about probabilistic programming. Right? <laughs> and so the field of data science is now creating more, even more rigor around exactly what you're talking about, but creating predictive capabilities to say, what might a person do? And then yep. how many behaviors can I imagine that they might do? And then how far is the behavior that I'm observing from that predicted mean? And that might be fraud. And obviously, this is a field that you're aware of, but it's fascinating for me to sit at the edge of my seat, peering into sort of this, this mathematical application world. It's kind of amazing. What is so fascinating about security, particularly for you? So I'm a default good guy, but I'm also a default skeptic. And I'm very paranoid. So, <laughs> so if you take all those things and you kind of put it together, I mean, that's actually the essence of a security professional. So if you think about most fraud or most breaches, the security professional has to be right 100% of the time. The bandit only has to be right once, right? And there's a huge jackpot at the end of the rainbow. And for me, it's the challenge because there are way more people that are attempting to break in than there are people defending. And because of that, you're never bored. They're so creative. I nearly admire them because you think of all the different ways that they approach a problem. So that means you have to be as creative when defending against all these different vectors. So to me, it's a never-ending problem. That's probably the reason why I love security. That is fascinating. Security is a really interesting paradox. You pointed at another paradox earlier, which is like technical business leadership. One part of your brain's got to be like, I'm building the greatest thing ever. And then one part of your brain's going to be like, but people aren't using it and they won't because it's not good enough, right? <laughs> kind of that, you know, make the product, but can you make it fit the market, right? That's yeah. paradoxical. Yeah. And then this sort of security versus development. Another paradox, right? Somebody builds the systems believing that they're building something that will work the right way that it's supposed to work all the time. Mm -hmm. And then security inverts that and says, how do we make sure that it never does what it's not supposed to? Right. Very hard for the same human brain to contain those thoughts, right? It's a lot of validation and verification. You're making sure that everything that's supposed to be doing what it's doing is actually doing it and it's not doing anything you don't want it to do. And the moment it does, that could be an indicator of compromise. I, I don't think I'd ever get tired of security. <laughs> And it's super data intensive, which also makes it cutting edge and means that you have to build new tools to solve it. So you built Thin Air yep. as a result of the work that you're doing at MasterCard. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that as well as what's in it, because so much of what we do now stands on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. We borrow endless quantities of thought, algorithms, heuristics, but also direct software libraries, mm -hmm. which is becoming a new stage of security problem, like the solar winds breach. Like, oh, somebody got into like a yeah. library we didn't even know we used. So how do you make sure that when you're building a security product like Thin Air, that it remains secure and you're on top of all of that? So I'd just love to hear your experience and sort of surprises in your work in that line. The problem that we were solving was data is gold. It's the most valuable asset in the world. And to protect it, then you need to understand its usage. 
So at the time, there was no visibility to actually how data was being used. You knew that it was there, but you didn't really know the applications that it had or what people actually saw it and where it was stored. So what we invented at Finair was basically think of it as like a data usage camera. So anytime a data element was actually presented to either a computer system or a person or even through an API, we would track that interaction occurred and attributed to an entity. We would then track that over time so that in the event that data was actually exposed or exfiltrated, we could compute with a high degree of probability the most likely people to have exfiltrated that information based on usage, based on how it was accessed, based on when it was accessed. So all these different factors that could have been indicators of compromise. And that in itself was actually quite novel at the time that we brought that to market. And then actually there have been several larger companies that have gone on to be very successful. I think a big idea is actually one of them that comes to mind immediately. That's cool. What were the technical challenges as you started to build that? It's an embarrassing amount of data. It's a really challenging computational problem, right? So just for a little bit more you know, context, the field is metadata, yep. right? And so you're creating a metadata capture system, which in and of itself is an audit device, right? It's not really the value. So companies typically are like, hey, we're going to pay most of our money to the microservice that's generating the API because somebody's paying for access and like that's the happy path. Right. And then everything else is often perceived as a tax. Right. right. So building that business is hard because you have to build something that doesn't computationally interfere with the core workload, doesn't reduce rate latency. That's right. And also is priced at the right level so that you can sell it into like the audit governance group or create some chief information security officer path. But that's a really tricky area based on the economics, in a way, the physics, right, of what you're trying to solve. So I'm curious what you use and what you had to borrow, what you had to learn on the way. So we started out by understanding what data elements actually existed on the endpoint itself. So think of it as a distributed search problem. So there's an indexer that exists on the endpoint. That indexer would find data elements, understand what they are, and then send telemetry to a server which would then analyze that telemetry to see if there is an outlier within the population. So if people typically use credit cards in way X within this organization, then if they start to use it in way Y, then that may be an indicator of compromise. So the biggest problems that we had to solve actually were around collecting that data in an efficient way that didn't impact the endpoint or the system that was being observed in a way that was negative to performance, but also being able to analyze and process that data in real time. So let's say if you're a 100,000 person company and you've got a million computing systems that have data on them in some way, some of them are virtual, some of them are physical, some of them are in, in people's pockets. That's an astronomical amount of data. So we had to come up with new ways to memoize information so that we could calculate things at scale in a way that didn't require us to have every server that Amazon had. And so that then we could deliver this service at a price point that actually made sense to end users. And then on top of that, we also had to develop software. We actually used some of the search engines from the scene. I mean, we obviously used a lot of the Postgres database and a bunch of Redis clusters for terminal data. So we stood on the shoulders of giants, clearly. But our innovation was the problem that we were solving and the way that we were solving it. That's an awesome topic and something I care a lot about. I've asked this question many times, and every time I get a unique answer, it's becoming my maybe unhealthy fascination. What does open source data mean to you? I'm actually a quite little person. So to me, it is literally the collection and the understanding. So if you think using open source products to actually collect and understand information, that's what it is to me. And that's actually been what most projects that I've been involved with have actually been the essence of is collecting metadata in some way, shape, or form, analyzing it at scale, and then spitting out a prediction as to whether this is 
okay or not. <laughs> the behavior that it's actually watching. I've built the same system over and over and over again in my career. Now to start thinking about it. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about the clone detection problem you were describing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the inverse of war driving, right? I get that same sense of there's a pattern, it right, is. that you're really good at. And yeah. that's why we have so much to learn from you. And you have to build them against a novel environment because to some degree, right, the cell phone problem, it was an environment of scarcity. Mm-hmm. There's a scarce number of these resources. There's a scarcity of international network connections. There's mm-hmm. a high individual dollar cost. The world we're in now is the inverse. It's about abundance. There's an incredible abundance of data. There's an abundance of software. There's an abundance of open source, which is often what I see that brings people to use open source tools and think about open source data where they're like, how many bits am I going to be processing per day in three years? Yep. I don't know, but it's probably 10x more than today. Oh, wow. If, What's if, that going to cost me on a license cost basis? I can't even do the math. I'm going to grab an open source thing. That's right. And then we'll figure out how we deal with business. So it's interesting to see how that's applied to you and even in your current role, because you're probably one of the leading adopters of OS Query, yep. which I'd love to hear a little bit more about what led you to that. And then maybe I'll start asking you a few questions about the current application because your story is so awesome and it's all coming together in my head at least. Thin Air was actually part of Y Combinator's 2015 class. And a cohort buddy of mine was Mike McNeil, who's the current CEO of Fleet Device Management. And actually also Sid, who was the CEO of GitLab. So at some point, Sid met up with Zach Wasserman, who was actually one of the co-creators of OS Query. And they had decided that at some point they were going to create a company around this amazing technology that they had created. So OS Query is an endpoint agent that you install across systems that actually will allow you to ask questions about that computer system. So it could be an endpoint, it could be a server, it could be anything that you can install this agent on. And what would happen is that you could type in a SQL query and it get a response back and you could do some analysis against it, even at scale across millions of machines simultaneously. So that is an opportunity. But it was an open source project, but there was no open core company that was really behind it, that was driving the adoption of it and also helping advance the technology in a way that that we thought there was an opportunity. So Sid partnered with Zach. And then at some point, Mike got involved. I don't know if it was a few months later, but they all decided to start this company. And as Mike was growing the company, he actually remembered Thin Air. He remembered my YC presentation for Thin Air. And he reached out to me and he's like, hey, man, I'm doing this thing. It reminds me a little bit of what you were working on. You know, what do you think about just hanging out with this for a few months and let's just see what happens? And at the time, I wasn't doing anything that was really that time consuming. So I was like, you know what? I'd love to just understand what you guys are doing. And the more time I spent with the team, the more excited I got about the company. And actually, I started working with them maybe in October of last year. And then in January of this year, I joined as the head of customer engineering. So my job is to make sure everybody understands exactly how to deploy this thing. They can scale it. They understand how to use it. And they can actually integrate into their security infrastructure in new and novel ways. So I help them do that. That's awesome. And obviously, like you couldn't stop once you had that first taste. <laughs> oh, no. The technology is incredible. I remember when OS Query came out, I was still doing thin air, and I was really impressed with the potential for that technology. To me, I thought this thing had legs, but I was preoccupied, so I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't focus on that at the time. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting problem, right? As context, like being able to query the operating system of a device is how you manage data centers forever, right? And when you think about a great company like Red Hat, 
to some degree, a lot of what they did was they had a great agent technology. They understood Linux super well. You could drop them in and they'd start helping you manage a embarrassingly complicated problem at the time and start to get your hands around it. And then you started paying for the distribution. You started paying for more advanced monitoring and management tools. And then, of course, along the way, they ended up becoming an application platform too. So mm -hmm. it's a really interesting space. Of course, back when Red Hat was focusing on that for the first time, it was a bare metal world. Mm -hmm. And then it became a virtualization world where it actually made Linux growth even faster because mm -hmm. the core of virtualization practice, the cutting edge was really Linux for lots of reasons. So ahead of Fleet VM, right, you're building on waves of good patterns. There must be some really cool stuff ahead of you in terms of building next level applications while knowing that the underlying data is true and open and secure. Super curious about your thoughts on that. The thing that really excites me about OS Query is that traditionally how this problem has been solved is that you install an agent and it has limited functionality. It's rigid, it's understood, and it does that thing, and it's, you're very good at doing that thing. We talked about earlier how creative adversaries can be. And that creativity, a lot of times, is hard to predict. So if you have an agent that has a set number of sensors that's within it, and these are fixed, and these are developed at the time that the system is deployed, then guess what? If I'm an adversary, I just develop some new approach that this thing won't detect. Well, the great thing about OS Query is that since it is a sensor-based system that is queryable, it literally gives you the ability to discover new indicators of compromise and then use those when doing security investigations. And OS Query allows you to create these extremely interesting queries that would find things that you would never be able to find with a traditionally static functionality agent. And that, to me, is extremely exciting. The fact that you have this agent that is extendable and it's configurable and it's deployable across multiple different platforms, at the end of the day, I mean, it feels like it's almost a superpower for visibility. It's a fascinating meditation on the state of technology today, right? That you had to go not only to massive distributedness, massive abundance, yep. but future-proofing by expecting more abundance, right? How do you expect that the endpoint will evolve? This whole landscape of Evolving threats is amazing. I remember a really great technical leader and business leader, Javier Soltero, built a company called Hyperic in the late 2000s, right? That became a default way to manage a bunch of Linux and Java infra infrastructure. There was a really cool API architecture hmm. called SIGAR, very clever, S-I-G-A-R, relating to signals. But I always think but the problems that we were solving were so complicated back then. But the problems you're solving now in the same domain are at least a thousand times more <laughs> technically complex, just in that abundance problem, and how do you get the algorithms to scale? We were talking a little bit about ML and AI and what can you infer about physics, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining that some level of these interactions and data flows that you're creating with all this open source technology is leading to be able to, be able to make higher level inferences, know a little bit more about where is this device, it's got four dimensions, where did it go now, and start to learn things. That's got to be part of at least what's on your mind, if not in your day-to-day -day implementation life. That's actually exactly what I spent my day doing is working with customers to build those types of systems. Because if you think about it, most large organizations are actually very custom. They're very, they have very bespoke infrastructures that have unique requirements. And because of that, the things that they care about are actually, they're wildly different from organization to organization. So a lot of those organizations actually use Fleet as a data source. And then they take it, put it inside of the SIM, and then extract insight from those, from multiple different sources. So don't think of it as, what can I only get from Fleet? It's also what can I get from Fleet and maybe my other security infrastructure so that together it's a line 
towards an understanding versus it being just a data point that doesn't really have a lot of context. Yeah, there's no more architectures with disconnected nodes. The truth about data these days, I think, is that it's an open source data ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And we have to think in advance, like, what are the unexpected constituents that will have valid reasons to use my stuff in the future? And how can I hopefully make that a little easier for those poor souls in data engineering who are going to get like <laughs> a really, really hard job of automating and recovering and repairing from this at some point in the future. Everything we build is instant legacy. How do we do a better job for the next generation? I think it's actually to not be beholden to what tools you have today and even the approaches that you have today. You have to be adaptive. You have to change as the landscape changes. And every second the landscape is changing. I was working with this one customer where they had discovered a new indicator of compromise that they would not have discovered unless they would have been able to query it against the using fleet. By having this ability to see a lot of things simultaneously and also being open to analyzing that information in a way that may not have, that you traditionally have thought was possible because of the new technologies that exist, the ability for you to take a lot more data and process it very quickly, that's given rise to just these very complex systems that are actually pretty accurate in determining when something bad is either happening or about to happen. Today, it's pretty cool, but I can't wait to see what tomorrow brings. We keep finding new things. It's so exciting to me. That's super cool. I, I end up thinking a lot about forward interoperability planning because the future is divergent. There's so many new analytic systems. I've been interested in streaming and I've d dug a little into Apache Arrow and Apache Arrow Flight. Mm -hmm. And then somebody pointed out like, hey, there's this streaming graph technology. I'm streaming and graph like i was just getting my head around graphs now you have streaming <laughs> graphs so you know we can't predict all those endpoint systems but just being a good citizen is, is kind of a big deal i'm really curious what's one question you've always wanted someone to ask you or that someone should have asked you but never did i actually think it's the question that i've actually answered over and over which is when i tell the story about my dad so the question to me is like who's your hero for me it's my parents my dad was the guy that gave me the technical understanding and the technical confidence to go out and solve a problem. But my mom gave me the personal confidence when things didn't go right. Because remember, building a thing technically, you can architect a thing and you can determine very quickly if it's going to work or not. But when you're building like a startup or you're achieving some goal that has people involved, guess what? That's a much less computable problem. So that means there's a lot more things that you have to be aware of and be thoughtful about. And my mom really taught me how to be successful in that area, but also how to persevere through setbacks and things that are not expected. Those two together, I think, really gave me a pretty good base that allowed me to have the confidence or maybe the foolishness to go out and start companies. <laughs> you did an outstanding job selecting your parents. <laughs> right. I, I had no <laughs> huge, huge success, no ability to choose this at all. <laughs> I know how it feels. I'm grateful for the accidents of my birth. Like I wouldn't be here if the British Empire hadn't existed because my dad's from South India. Wow. And the analysis of genomes suggests that they came out of the African migration 50,000 years ago oh to Southern goodness. India. So there's no chance <laughs> that he would meet somebody who was blonde, green-eyed, and mostly Scottish and Irish heritage, except she ended up in Australia because her ancestors were in Australia, because the British Empire was everywhere, and they both spoke English. So they met in San Francisco in wow. Summer of Love in 1967, right? So I did a good job choosing my parents, but like I'm not sure I could have done <laughs> the backwards math. And your dad is a little bit of a, a Tony Stark character right now. He's innovating in cancer surgical procedures in a 
basically a, a medical grade facility that he's built in his own house. Yeah. So one of the things, so if you're a cancer patient, one of the things that actually is the most deadly are infections. Rarely is it anything outside, depending on the cancer, it can be extremely damaging to your body. That's one thing. But the thing that most people have issues with are infections. So you have a compromised immune system, which means that even picking something up off the floor can cause a massive infection that could be deadly to somebody. So he created a sterile environment. (laughs) But he also created a mechanism that allowed him to pinpoint actually with a camera system that that he made so that he could actually view all the portions of his body that you can't normally see. He could zoom in and actually give instruction as to how to treat a particular wound to an assistant that would be helping him. So imagine if you had a full-time nurse that just did this, and this is the only job that she had, that makes sense for maybe a billionaire. But for you to do this at a scale where the normals of us walking amongst the world to do that, you have to scale that visibility through technology. That's one of the things that he did, among other things. But that's actually, I think that's probably been the most effective way, because Literally, the moment that he sees an infection through his inspection system, he treats it immediately. He'll have an assistant perform surgery and he'll direct it. If I was put in this position a year, maybe, right? Probably seven days. <laughs> but he's lasted a decade. It's incredible to see. It's so inspiring. That is like the Oxford dictionary definition of awesome, not like the Californian <laughs> version of awesome, which means like pretty good. But that is truly awesome. I feel like he needs his own documentary. You've been incredibly gracious and thoughtful in your time. I'd like to ask you for one more moment of generosity. There are folks listening to this conversation and listening to your life experience, and they want to follow that path. They want to follow the inventor's path to make things that didn't exist. They want to follow the innovator's path to make people that make things that people really want to use. What's advice or resource that you'd point them at? It's really about passion. First of all, I encourage everybody to start a business and I encourage them to start them as frequently as possible. So there's a reason to that because practice makes perfect. The first time you try to do this thing, you're going to suck. Like you're going to have a terrible time (laughs) or you'll have an incredible time. It's most likely you're going to have a terrible time, but you'll learn so much. You'll build so much confidence. And then those lessons that you learn, they're cumulative. And then you start to learn things faster, right? So eventually you get to the point where you can pretty much deduce how to solve a particular problem because you've seen a lot of problems that kind of look like that and you've made enough wrong decisions where there actually aren't any too many wrong decisions left and you may look up and find a right one. (laughs) I wouldn't call it directly a numbers game, but it's really a perseverance game more than anything. So persevere, be unafraid, try it, do it. The worst that can happen is you fail. The best that can happen is you have an incredible company that you've built. I'll take those odds every day. And if not this time, next time. Exactly. We have a saying in my household, which we were trying to defend against this idea of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So we took out the idiom of practice makes you perfect. We're like, no, it's baloney. Nothing's ever perfect. Nobody will be. But practice does make you better. (laughs) It does. It does. Yeah, perfect is actually the enemy of success. (laughs) Tony, Thank you so much for your time. I'm inspired and I can't wait to see where Fleet DM goes, where OS Query goes, building out this vast open source data ecosystem. And I hope that we'll get a chance to chat with you on the podcast again, because we're hoping to create an ecosystem of leaders Mm. being able to work together to help everybody who's trying to build this crazy, complicated world and give everyone a little insight and some different points of view. So I hope we can get a chance to chat with you again and wish you incredible success. Thank you, Sam. It was an honor to be here. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much.
I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro. Audra, I had a lot of fun in that conversation. What stood out for you? What stood out to me about Tony was his evolution from security to where he's at now and how security brings out his creativity. So the asymmetric effect of more attackers than defenders, right? And how those attackers are creative every time. And then Tony's time at Thin Air where customers had no visibility of how data was used. So they built a data usage camera to find an indicator of compromise. So solving the hard problem of how do you calculate data usage at scale without needing as many servers as Amazon has? And that brought them to the use of open source utilities. To the introduction of OS Query, now backed by Fleet, Tony reminded us that the creativity of attackers is hard to predict. But OS Query is a sensor-based system that is queryable and can evolve over time just as attackers do. Thank you. Well, a big thank you to our audience for joining us today. If you liked the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please drop me a tweet at OSD underscore podcast. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, our producer, Alexa Minter, for program management, Vidim Yuri and Kyle Ruska, for audio and visual engineering, Scott Goodrich and Evan Ha, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And of course, the data stacks team, like social leader, Lauren Goal, and Katie Asher with the web design team. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data. <laughs>